Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Father, thank you for bringing us together tonight. I pray that you would fill us all full of the Holy Spirit, really listen to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would really be the one speaking through me to all of us uh, to guide us into all truth. I pray um, whether this is stuff tonight that we will talk about, listen to, that it's the first time we've ever heard it, or maybe it's something that we've heard multiple times before. Would you give all of us uh, wisdom about how to apply it to our lives more fully in a way that we can please you more, honor you more, uh, but also bring more joy and happiness to our own lives. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So the, the way we've been doing this when I've been here uh, is I'll start out kind of telling a couple of stories um, of, of some problems in marriage uh, and then uh, give some text and principles. Come on in. We just started um, that might help address those stories. So one story I'll tell uh, is about a young woman I know, and when she grew up, uh, she had, in, in many ways, a great home, but her father had this interesting thing that, that I still don't fully understand, where he would never compliment her to her face. He would never say anything nice to her directly, and would really never say anything nice about her in her presence. It's like he really withheld any type of compliment. He might talk proudly about her to his friends when she wasn't around, and she might hear about it later. But that she says, never once to her face, like said, you look good or you played great in that game or good job on your grades. Now, imagine how that might affect a woman. Um, and so she comes into marriage, and in a sense I would say there are now a lot of performance idols, you might call them. She's always striving, always trying to be the best mom, the best wife, uh, the, the captain of the PTA association at school, whatever. She's always striving, and one of the ways it plays out in her marriage uh, Saturday rolls around, and maybe the husband's like, I just want to have an off day. Let's just have a day where we just relax and don't do anything. She can never stop. There's always something kind of driving to do more, build more, serve more. And it seems like, you trace it back, it goes to she's looking for some compliment she never got. All right? That's one example. Always trying to win her dad's smile. I know another uh, lady who her mother, when she was younger, talked to her a lot about her weight. You need to lose weight. You ever want to get a boyfriend. You ever want to get married. It's kind of hard on her about you need to do a better job taking care of yourself. And maybe it was a little harsh in the delivery sometimes. And so this little girl, uh, probably she didn't realize it then, but she kind of made an internal vow to herself that basically said, I'll never change to get somebody to love me. If somebody's going to love me, they're just going to love me just the way I am. Now, maybe something about that's good, but you can see how it's warped. Later she gets married, and if her husband, uh, not even talking about weights, like I'd like you to clean the house more, I'd like you to... Quit uh, running up all these credit card bills that you're doing on online shopping sprees. She doesn't change because in her mind, she's like, well, if you really love me, you'd never ask me to change. Obviously a problem. The man she's married to, he grew up with a dad who had multiple affairs, really broke the son's heart. And I remember the guy told me at one point, he said, again, I don't think he knew it when he was a child. But looking back later in life, he said, it was almost like I made a vow. I'll never cry again. My dad broke my heart so many times. I'll never show weakness like that again. So you put him into a marriage, I'll never show weakness. I'll never cry. 
very little affection, very little emotion that most women want. And you've got this woman kind of refusing to change, saying, you're going to love me exactly the way I am. But this guy never shows any emotion or affection. You can imagine what a terrible dance that is, right? And then uh, my wife, she grew up in a broken non-Christian home. And some of y'all don't, don't know me, don't my wife, but my wife is fine with me sharing these stories. Um, so I'm not outing her or anything. And she had a dad that was very passive. He didn't show up very much. And he would make promises, right? I'll be at the game. Then he wouldn't show up. So she had a large distrust of men in her life. And so when we first got married, she was often kind of almost paranoid. Where are you going? When are you going to be home? And kind of questioning me, doubting me. And I didn't respond to that very well. Uh, but I wasn't a perfect guy, but I typically showed up when I said I'd be somewhere. And all the questioning uh, didn't go over very well. And I would kind of respond in some arrogant, kind of self-righteous, shut up and trust me type stuff. That didn't go well. That turned into a bad dance. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And some of the older translations say cleave to his wife, like be glued to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Now here's what we want to talk about tonight. When it talks about a man leaving his father and mother to cleave to his wife, it means a lot more than just moving out of the house and buying a new house for him and his wife. There's a whole psychological component of leaving your family of origin to start a new family. And there's at least three different ways that can happen. All right? The first one would just be there's new priorities. I mean, when a child is born into a family, for better or worse, the number one loyalty is to mom and dad. There, there's a love and a loyalty for mom and dad. That's, that's the main relationship in life. And when you get married, that has to be broken to some degree. I still honor mom and dad, but they're not number one anymore. Now... My wife is number one, or my husband is number one. I'll give you a practical example from my life. I, had a, I still have a great dad. He's still alive. Uh, but especially in high school and college, he was probably my best friend and really was like a mentor. Okay? So when I first get married, I still treated him as kind of my main mentor, main accountability partner. Seemed great. It worked for years. But here was the problem. If my wife and I ever got into a fight, I'm talking to my dad, getting my advice from him, and he's a very godly guy. But my wife at some point said, i got to be honest, Olin, I'm not totally comfortable with this. Because your dad is a great godly guy, but at the end of the day, he's still a human being. You're his son. It, there's got to be some level of bias and loyalty. And she said, it's just hard for me that you're talking to him about all our fights. And then we got to go there for Thanksgiving, you know. And he knows all our junk. She's like, that's just going to be really weird. And I had to say, you're right. I, I get that. I need to find somebody else. I can talk to my dad about 100 things. But when we're having marriage conflict, I probably need to find somebody else. It wasn't fair to her. And she had to be the greater loyalty over my dad. Make sense? Okay? That's part of what it means to leave. Here's a second one. Okay? Uh, culture and tradition. You can have certain cultures and traditions in your families. I'll give you one in mind. Okay? My mom growing up was, for the most part, a stay-at-home mom. Okay? And so the way, this is the way the laundry worked in my home. When there were dirty clothes... You put them into the hamper, you put them into the laundry room, and usually within one, two at the most days, they had been washed, they had been dried, they had been folded, they had been ironed, and they were like back in your room. It's wonderful. We get married, and maybe after about, I don't know, three, four weeks, I've gone through all the clothes I have, and they had been washed, okay? They had been dried, they had been folded. My wife, you have to understand, hates ironing. And so I was like, I don't have any clothes that have been ironed. I was like, what? You know, what's going on with the ironing of the clothes? 
And she said, she said, oh, well, just pick out an outfit you want to wear tomorrow, and I'd be happy to iron it for you. Now I was kind of offended because I'm like, I don't wear outfits, right? I just, I just go in the closet, and the first pair of you know, pants I see in the first shirt, I just pull them out. That's what I wear. But in her single mom home growing up, every morning was like a mad dash of drink some coffee, smoke some cigarettes, run around, find your favorite outfit, iron it right before. And so basically I had to die and say, okay, I guess I'll start picking out outfits the night before. Not, not totally. We came to a compromise. But, but here's the point of that story. We had to create a new culture. I had to say the way my family did it wasn't perfect. She had to say the way her and her mom did it wasn't perfect. We had to say, we're going to have new laundry rhythms. All right? Now listen, both of those are the easy one. Here's the hard one. You've got to have a new start and a new story oftentimes. And here's what I mean. The more dysfunctional your family of origin was, and let me just double-click here for a second, Everybody's family is dysfunctional to some degree, right? Because we all live east of Eden. So even if you had the godliest, my mom and dad love Jesus, they love one another, they love me, praise the Lord. Okay? I think I had a family pretty much like that. But my family wasn't perfect. There were problems in my family. Okay? Keep coming to Bible study and I'll probably share some at some point. All right? Um, but the more dysfunctional your family is. The more, in a sense, what was happening in that family is they were writing a story. They were kind of saying, this is the way the world is supposed to work. This is the way that men and women are supposed to interact. And as a little kid, you were drinking it in. I've heard, I had a counseling professor in seminary say this, so wise. He said, listen, um, children are wonderful observers. They don't miss much, but they tend to be terrible interpreters the way that they kind of drink things in and interpret it. So let me give you an example of what I mean. I'll flip over to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Because if you're growing up in a very broken, dysfunctional family, a lot of times there's pain, there's hurt, there's sin. And if you, in some sense, are still hurt, still offended, still frustrated, still suffering the consequences of some of that brokenness, it can warp the way that you come into marriage. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Now, I'm going to give this an example here. It's not exactly about marriage, but I think it will prove the point. Genesis chapter 50, let's start in verse 15. This is the Joseph story. Let me, let me just pause for a second. I'm going to assume most of us are familiar with the Joseph story, so I'll just give you the high-level version. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. Most of his brothers hated him. They beat him up. They sold him into slavery in Egypt. They lied and told Daddy he was dead. He's there for many, many years. Then there's a famine. Joseph becomes the second-in-command of Egypt. His brothers have to come to him basically to beg for bread. They don't know it's him. They think he died in slavery years ago. Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers but says, I love you. I forgive you. I'm giving you the paraphrased version. Okay? He says, I love you. I forgive you. Move to Egypt and I'll provide for you. And he does. They move to Egypt and he takes care of them. He treats them wonderfully. It's obvious he's forgiven them. But when Jacob, their daddy, dies, they start to doubt and wonder, did Joseph really forgive us? Or was he just being nice to us because that's what daddy would want? Okay, so that's what we're going to pick up. Genesis chapter 50, look in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of your servant of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. 
when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, you're thinking, some of you are thinking, what in the world does this have to do with marriage? Joseph's brothers were still living under the old story. What was the old story? The old story was, we were really bad. We were really mean. We beat up Joseph. We sold him into slavery. We lied about it. He suffered for it. And so deep down, he must really hate us. That was the old story. He must really want revenge on us. And they were being defined by that story. And so once Jacob, daddy, was out of the way, they're like, please don't kill us. Joseph weeps. Why? Because Joseph is really living under the new story. Joseph is saying, guys, I forgave y'all. What y'all did was bad. But, but it doesn't define me anymore. Because what defines me is God's sovereign work to take even the evil that you intended and to turn it into something good in my life. Does that make sense? So one of the questions is, we've, this has all been by way of introduction, by the way, okay? One of the questions I want you each to be asking in your mind, especially if you have pain from your family of origin, do you tend to be more defined by the pain and the family of origin that you grew up in? Or do you have, happen to be more defined by the gospel story of forgiveness? And I'm going to try to tease that out about how it works. Because listen... If there were people in your past that hurt you, and just pause there and think for a second, that's all of us, right? There's the danger of being too defined by that hurt, by that sin. And the way out is forgiveness. And that's part of what we're going to talk about. Part of what it means to really leave psychologically and spiritually the old story behind is to forgive like Joseph had forgiven. So... Let me tell you a little bit more of my wife's story, and then we'll dive into this, okay? Um, Part of what happened is she had to do some of the hard work of of meeting with counselors, of talking with me, of going and talking to her father, even confronting her father, to get to a place where she could finally say, Hey, Dad, I forgive you. I forgive you. All the pain, all the hurt that you caused me as a little girl, I forgive you. And it wasn't just like one little meeting, one little Hallmark card. It was a process. But here's what happened in our marriage. When she kind of came out from under that hurt and bitterness towards her dad, she started to become a much more happy wife, a much more trusting wife. And that had an impact on me. I became a much more happy husband. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's where we're going. So... Listen, maybe it was your mom, maybe it was your dad, maybe it was a football coach, maybe it was a brother, a sister, an uncle, I don't know. But I want you to think about the person in life that's hurt you the most. All right? What are we supposed to do with that kind of stuff in our life? First thing, we're supposed to pray. All right, flip over to Matthew chapter 6. Some of you, I don't know all of your stories, but there may be some of you right now like, man, this is hard and I don't know if I want to go here. The first thing that you ought to do is pray. Matthew chapter 6, and let's look at the Lord's Prayer. The most famous prayer probably of all time. Starting in verse, uh, let's just, we'll we'll read the whole thing. Start in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I bet we've all heard the Lord's Prayer, prayed the Lord's Prayer before. It's very short, right? Of all the things Jesus could say, look at all the emphasis He puts on forgiveness. Not just asking God to forgive us. We know that's a need. But he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive others their debts. At first glance, let's just be honest, if if we were just looking at verse 12, that sounds almost like a works-based salvation, does it not? It sounds like I've got to go out and practice forgiveness. And if I do a good enough job forgiving other people, then God will forgive me. But that's not true for a lot of reasons. One, the whole counsel of Scripture But even notice the prayer. Look at how it starts. Our Father in heaven. This is Jesus teaching true believers how to pray. This isn't for lost people to pray. This is for true believers how to pray. So what's the point? It's like this. If I say to God, let me give an illustration. Imagine if I said, I love the feeling of air coming into my body. You know, it it keeps me alive. It's very beneficial. But for whatever reason, I'm just a weird person. I say, I hate the feeling of air leaving my body. So I say, I never want any air to leave my body again. So I'm going to put my hand over my nose and my mouth so that I can never breathe any air out of my nose or mouth again. You see the problem, right? If you can't have air going out of your nose and mouth, neither can you have it coming in, you're going to die. And in a very similar fashion, it's like God is saying, if you want to have your heart open to me to receive all the benefits of my love and forgiveness, you've got to be willing to keep your heart open to other human beings at the horizontal level to practice the same forgiveness. Does that make sense? In the most extreme example, if there's a person that says, somebody hurt me years ago, and I don't care, I'll never forgive them, and they never do, then that person is definitely not a Christian. But what about where I think many of us live, when somebody really hurts us and we momentarily refuse to forgive them. Right? I mean, that even happens in marriage a lot, right? I, don't worry, I'm not going to ask anybody to share any testimonies tonight. But haven't there been times where, I mean, my wife has told me before, and it's, it's, it's legitimate because I've done something sinful, I've done something stupid, I've done something selfish, and I've come to talk to her about it, and she says, listen, I know I have to forgive you. And I'm going to forgive you. But not yet. I'm too hurt, I'm too mad. I just need some space from you right now. And you know what I do in that moment? I say, you're not a Christian. Of course not. That would be moronic, right? That would just, that would absolutely ruin the marriage. I say, okay, I'll give you space. Because that's how the human heart works sometimes, right? But what this is teaching us is this, guys. If I make a practice of pausing, of waiting, of hardening my heart, of letting calluses develop at forgiveness at the human level, you know what will start to happen in my vertical relationship with God? It's not that I won't be forgiven, because once you're a real Christian, all your sins are legally forgiven, past, present, and future, right? But it's this. You won't experience the forgiveness. I mean, I was talking to a friend today, and he was saying, man, I feel so dry. When I read the word, God feels so distant. And I didn't have enough time because I had to leave. But if I had more time, what I would have asked him is, is there anybody in your life you had not forgiven? Because in my experience, when a real Christian feels distant from God and dry and like he's trying to read the Bible but he doesn't feel like God is near, 
oftentimes it's because there's somebody in your life you're holding a grudge to. And so God says, you're not going to practice forgiveness. I'm not going to let you experience all the joy of my forgiveness. Does that make sense? So guys, for some of y'all, you may say, man, I grew up in a great family. I don't think I got anybody to forgive in the past. Praise the Lord. You might have somebody in the present to forgive. And it might be your spouse. Specifically, when we remember the grace that God has already had on us, it ought to make it easier to forgive others. So part of this is just praying about this, meditating on this. Okay. The second point, flip over to Mark chapter 11. What should we do when there's hurt and there's pain? Whether from our family of origin or from our spouse currently, we should first pray about it. Ask God for grace. Please help me forgive God. But the second thing is we should forgive. Look at Mark chapter 11. Let's start in verse 22. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now just pause there for a second. I mean, this is one of those passages you read in the Bible and you're like, I'm a good Christian, I believe the Bible's true, but this is really hard. You know, what's he talking about? Literally throwing mountains in the sea, and I can ask whatever I want, and I'll get it. But notice the context. Notice the next thing he says. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I think at least part of what Jesus is saying is, I know how hard it is to forgive people. I know how painful, how impossible it can seem to forgive somebody that's really sinned against you in a deep way. But part of the one of the things that you ought to ask for God, give me faith to help me forgive. It seems impossible, but I want to forgive. There is a type of forgiveness, and, and you can call this different things, step one forgiveness, uh, the first step of forgiveness. Sometimes I just call it offering forgiveness. There's a type of forgiveness that just is me and Jesus I'm in the prayer closet, so to speak. I'm talking to God, and I'm saying, I can't believe she did that. I can't believe she treated me that way. I can't believe she said that, right? you got a grudge. And you just say, you know what, Father? I forgive her. I forgive her. You don't even talk to her yet. It's coming later. But it's just right now, it's just between me and God. I'm saying, God, you've been so merciful to me. What right do I have to not show mercy? I forgive. And all you're doing at that point is saying, I'm not going to hold a grudge. I'm not going to keep playing the tape over and over again in my mind. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been hurt by somebody? Maybe they just said something that really wounded you. And it's like you're driving down the road and you're just, and you're just thinking about it over and over again. And you're also thinking about, I can't wait till I see them again. Because here's what I'm going to say back, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's what part of this prayer is addressed at. Just say, God, I'm going to quit playing it over and over and again in my mind. I'm giving it to you. I forgive them. I'm not going to hold a grudge. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Just flip over there really quickly. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Think about a root, guys. It's something that's alive. It's often something that's buried underground. You can't see it. It might be small, but it's growing. And bitterness has a poisonous fruit. And somebody before me said, bitterness is like a poison pill that you take and you wait for the other person to die. 
It's like, I'm going to lock them in prison with my anger. I'm going to hold them accountable. But really, I'm the one in chains. I'm the one being enslaved. So there's a type of forgiveness in my heart where I just say, God, I forgive these people. I forgive my parents, whatever, whoever it is. Now, um, I'll give you kind of a funny example. I've got some friends, and I was talking to the man and wife one time, and she said, when I really get mad at my husband, he usually doesn't pick up on it. And she said, so what happens is he can just sleep like a baby. He's one of these guys that can fall asleep quick, anytime, anywhere. We'll get into bed. She said, but when I'm really mad, I can't fall asleep. And she said, so I just stay awake, and I just stare at him. And she said, I'll do it for like an hour. And then I realized, I'm stupid. He is sound asleep, sleeping like a baby, literally snoring. And I'm sitting here like daggers from my eyes. He doesn't even know I'm mad. So what does she need to do? She needs to forgive him in the heart. And then the next morning, she needs to talk to him about it. And if she said, well, I can't do that, well, wake him up and talk to him about it. And then maybe you can both get some sleep. Okay? But sometimes that's what we do with bitterness. Go back to Luke chapter 23. I want to give you the best example. of What do I mean when I talk about step one forgiveness? Or the first step of forgiveness? Or just offering forgiveness? When in doubt, you want the best example in the Bible, it's always Jesus. So Luke chapter 23, this is Jesus on the cross. And let's start in verse 34. Luke 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today will be, you will be with me in paradise. And look back at verse 34. Who was Jesus praying for? All of them. The criminals, the soldiers, the high priest, the people that were mocking him. And his heart was, Father, forgive them. This is Jesus practicing what he preached. God, I'm not going to hold a grudge against them. Forgive them. I want you to... Listen, maybe the acid test of whether you've really forgiven somebody is how do you pray for them? Can you honestly say, God, I want the best for them. I want mercy for them. Or do you kind of look for those imprecatory psalms in the Old Testament where it's like, kill them, God. Kill my enemies. See, Jesus was offering a heart of forgiveness. But here's the point. Most of those people, as far as we know, they never repented. So they never received the forgiveness of Christ. One of the thieves on the cross did, and he was reconciled to that Christ that day. So, third point. Flip back to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, some more teaching of Jesus on forgiveness. Luke chapter 17, starting verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now here's the interesting thing. Just think about Luke 17, 3. In Mark 11, Jesus said, if you're praying and you think about somebody you got, you got against them, just forgive them right there. 
And this one he says, if somebody sins against you, you've got to go talk to them. You've got to rebuke them first. And if they repent, forgive them. It almost sounds like the two passages are contradictory, but they're not. The first one is about step one forgiveness. It's offering forgiveness. It's having a heart of forgiveness. I want to forgive. It's leaning into forgiveness. One author I was reading said it's like you're yearning to forgive. You're eager to forgive. Step two forgiveness is granting forgiveness. It's actually giving forgiveness. It's, it, it's actually reconciling with the other person. But it takes two to tango. If they won't repent, you can't be reconciled. Does that make sense? Now, bring this all back to marriage. Really practical. What if you're like, well, my parents weren't perfect, so I'm sure they did one or two little small things. Proverbs 19.11 says, it's the glory of man to overlook an offense. So if there's small things that your parents did or a coach did or whoever or your spouse has done, and you can just overlook it and forget about it and just pray about it, you don't even have to go confront them, great, do that. But guys, just be honest with yourself. Because if there was something big and massive and painful, it would be like going to the doctor and the doctor saying, you have stage 4 cancer. And you say, well, let's just put a Band-Aid on it. It's like, you don't understand. Band-Aids don't work on stage 4 cancer. We're going to have to do surgery. And when there have been big patterns in our past of sin, like some of the ones that I gave at the beginning tonight, oftentimes for there to be real reconciliation and forgiveness, there's got to be a conversation. Okay? Um, everybody flip to Ephesians chapter 4. But while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 4, let me just quote from Romans chapter 12, verse 18. is, is one of my favorite verses on this because it's so practical and so helpful. Romans 12, 18, Paul says this, As far as it goes with you, be at peace with all men. Right? I can offer somebody forgiveness. Jesus offered it to the crowds, even from the cross. I can't reach into somebody's heart and make them repent, Right? So my job is to offer forgiveness, maybe to go confront them and invite them to reconciliation. But if they refuse to repent, that's not on me. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, and skip down to verse 26. Be angry. There is such thing as righteous anger, and there's a, there's a place for righteous anger and calls for justice, and, and the Bible talks about that. We're just not talking about that tonight because we don't have enough time. But if something really heinous has happened, there's a time to call the police. Take somebody to court. Be angry and do not sin. Well, how do you be angry and don't let it turn into sin? Because even righteous anger will turn into sinful anger if you hang on to it too longer. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. That doesn't literally mean I've got to handle it the next 12 hours. What it means is deal with it as fast as possible. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Why? Because of, look at verse 27, guys. And if this hasn't seemed serious yet, I hope it will seem serious now. And give no opportunity to the devil. When we hang on to anger, when we nurse a grudge, even over legitimate hurt, it's like we're inviting Satan into our life. It's like we're opening the door to our heart and saying, come on in. So, Skip down to verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the power. I mean, I've dealt with people. You know, I, one girl that my wife and I ministered to, she was sexually molested by her father. Doesn't get more heinous than that. 
How could somebody that had, had that happen ever consider forgiving such a monster? The only hope is this. If we really start to see that my sin against God is such a terrible sin, and God still loved me and gave the blood of his son to save and cleanse me, if I can, I, if I can be shocked and in awe of how costly his grace is for me, I can turn and practice it towards other people. And even if they never repent, even if I'm never reconciled to them, if I've done the work to let go of the grudge, it's like I get freed from the old story. I can be like Joseph. I mean, Joseph suffered some pretty terrible stuff from his family of origin. But he said, I forgive you. And part of that because I think Joseph had experienced the saving grace of God. I'm telling you guys, when both spouses are trying to walk in this kind of forgiveness, <coughs> past sins, present sins, and even ready to do it for future sins that may come, it makes marriage so much sweeter, so much easier to cleave to one another and really live as one. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, we're such messy people. We have a lot of our own sin that's hard and hurtful and painful enough. And then you put on top other people's sins, whether that's our spouse sinning against us today or whether that's some authority figure sinning against us 40 years ago. Lord, it's painful to live on planet Earth with our own sin and other people's sin. It's so comforting to us that you are a sympathetic high priest, that you came to Earth, that you walked in our shoes, that you've been tempted in every way as we are. You were tempted to hold grudges, and yet you forgave your enemies. Teach us to forgive our enemies that we may be free to enjoy your grace more and enjoy our marriage more. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.